Samuel 18.1. The soul of Jonathan was knit with the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. The following are excerpts from Proverbs. Many claim to have unfailing love, but a faithful person who can find. Seldom set foot in your neighbor's house. Too much of you, and they will hate you. A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born of adversary. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come on you like a thief and scarcity like an armed man. Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. Those who flatter their neighbors are spreading nets for their feet. Like a manic shooting flaming arrows of death is one who deceives their neighbor and says, I was only joking. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. Whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. Then John 15, 13 through 16. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know a master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I have learned from my father, I have made note to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit. This is the word of the Lord. Tonight, specifically, we're going to talk about those passages that Alex just read and what they have to do with friendship, best friends, close friends. As last week, we talked a little bit more about kind of companions or just acquaintances, maybe your quantity of friends. And tonight, we're going to talk about the quality uh, of those friendships. And as I did with the, the week that we talked about our relationship with parents, um, whenever I get someone's insights or ideas in my head and I can't get them out, that means they're an incredible teacher, but it also means I need to give credit where it's due because even though I might not quote people, um, I'm channeling them. And so there's a book that came out recently that I'd recommend to you. It's by Justin Whitmer Early, and it's called Made for People, and he's one guy that I want to just give credit to um, for helping me think through these proverbs. and. Tim Keller as well, and uh, his preaching on this, and so I would recommend that to you as well. Let me pray for us, and we'll talk about forging close friendships. Jesus, as we just sang, all our life you have been good to us. And that statement is true for those in the room who know you and are friends with you and at peace with you and been reconciled by you. And that statement is true for those who are not reconciled to you, don't know you, don't know where they are with you. You treat your enemies well too. And so um, I pray that you would befriend and refresh your friendship with everyone in the room tonight and even those listening later. And Jesus, especially um, by your spirit, make these words tender and healing. It's a hard time to talk about friendship um, so many of my friends are new to town. They're new to UNG, UGA. And they don't feel like they have any close friendships. So I pray that you would shepherd them, even through these words, lest these words be burdensome to them and feel out of reach. I pray this in your name, Lord. Amen. Well, it seems like an obvious statement to ask you the question. It's nice to have a friend, right? Especially a close friend, a deep friendship. 
But it's not just a matter of preference, like, isn't it nice to have a friend? It's essential. It's essential to have close friendships. For example, you can thrive, some of you are going to argue with me about this, but you can, in fact, thrive with or without a boyfriend or a girlfriend. You can, in fact, thrive even now, even in the future, being married or being single. You can thrive being rich or barely scraping by. Plenty of content, happy people in all of those situations, but you can't thrive without deep friendships. You can thrive in most situations. You can't thrive in a situation where you don't have close friendships. So pop quiz, 30 seconds in. Guys, does your mind flow ever, does your mind ever flow towards thinking of finding and forging deep friendships with other guys? Or is it just thinking about the girls? Girls, does your mind just go to thinking about the guys or does your mind maybe even more quickly go to finding and forging deep friendship with other women? Last week, if you were here, we talked about the Surgeon General's report. He, his language was a lot more stark than the language that I'm using right here. He, didn't, he wasn't talking about, um, you, need, you need friendships to thrive. He said you need friendships, deep, deep friendships to survive. Because he said you can smoke a pack of cigarettes every day or you can live in loneliness. Pick your poison and has the exact same outcome on your life expectancy. So he said, a lonely soul will kill your body. And it's important to just state the obvious. That I don't, this isn't really news to any of us because we're the ones who feel this. But when people say they feel lonely, they're not saying they lack a quantity of friendships, right? Because you can have a ton of friends. You can know a lot of people and still be paralyzed with loneliness. They're not talking about a quantity or a lack of friendships. They're talking... Uh, they're talking about a quality of friendship that they lack. So the cure to loneliness isn't more friends, it's deeper friendships. Hear that. The cure to loneliness is not more friends. It's deeper friendships. And that's what we're talking about tonight. And that's what we see in that first verse. It's ever so short. It's just an appetizer of what's present really in that whole first chapter of the book of First Samuel. And it's a story of David, who is uh, the future king of Israel, and Jonathan, who is the oldest son of the current king of Israel, Saul, and their tight-knit relationship. And the Bible describes Jonathan and David's relationship this way. It says, the soul of Jonathan was knit together with the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. It is not a stretch to say that is saying they're soulmates. I don't know if that's where that term came from. Wouldn't be surprised. These kind of deep friends, these kind of soulmate friends in a sense, like David and Jonathan, are the people who have known you long enough to know you deep enough to know who you actually are. And they're still there. And they're still with you. And they're still for you. That's the kind of friends we're talking about. Whether that's already something that you have and names are coming to mind or something that you long for and are looking for. 
These are friends who stick their neck out for you and they expose themselves to danger for you. Go read 1 Samuel chapter 18 and you'll see what I mean of how these two risked for each other, put their lives in danger for each other. And these kind of friends are not friends with you because they need something from you, but because they want you. We all know the difference, and I'm not, a, there's a place for transactional relationships where we need something from each other, right? Like you need help on a project, you're just in a really tough spot, somebody else went through something similar, you need to get together and talk to them. That's fine, but these kind of soul deep, heart knit together kind of friendships are friends with you because they want you, not because they need something from you. And you're friends with them because you want them, not because you're trying to get something from them. So that was David and Jonathan. And while it's a specific description of their relationship, it's also a picture of what these relationships look like and can look like in our lives. It's a picture of what you were made for, truly. Whether you, whether you think of yourself as a person who has these kind of friendships or not, this was the kind of friendship that you were made for at this level of depth. So we could say that all of us in the room were made for a best friend and we were made to be a best friend. Let's work on that phrase, that term a little bit more. C.S. Lewis, you might have heard this before. I've shared it with you before. C.S. Lewis describes a best friend as the person who knows the song in your heart and reminds you of the words when you forget. They know the song in your heart, the spark in your heart. And they can remind you of the words when you forget. There was another author who was writing a book dedication, and he dedicated the book to his wife, his best friend, and he said, I have lost sight of where I end and where you begin. Best friends. Hearts woven into each other, woven together. Souls knitted together. Where you love another person as much as you love yourself. God is holding, out this, is holding this out to us, not as a luxury for a few of us in the room who might be really socially adept, but as a norm and as a necessity, not just to thrive, but to survive. The lack of this is the source of the loneliness that we feel. The lack of a friend who sees you as you are and is with you and isn't going away, and you get to be a friend to them in that way. Now, this, seems, this might seem to you romanticized. It might seem like this is a little bit over the top. Maybe you even felt a little weird when I described these two godly men, Jonathan and David, as soulmates. That might strike your ear as weird for me to say that. And it's important for us to realize we're the problem of why that sounds weird, not David and Jonathan, not the kind of friendships that are being described in that passage. The problem is, is in our cultural moment, we've so... we've. We've eroticized and romanticized things like this that we see it everywhere. We see it in everything. It's foreign to us that two guys could have this kind of relationship and it be a good thing. So we have trouble, we have trouble kind of wrapping our heads around this and, and imagining ourselves in their situation. And there's another reason it's hard for us. We're, a lot of us are illiterate and inexperienced in these kind of friendships. And that also makes it really hard to wrap our heads around this stuff, even though we want it. So for example, we're, we're illiterate 
because our culture doesn't value deep friendship. Uh, one, of the, one of the funniest sides in one of Tim Keller's sermons about this, he says, imagine every magazine cover you've ever seen in a grocery store checkout line, and what are the headlines, and what's the gossip? What does our culture want to talk about, and what do our eyes immediately go to? It's not who's best friends with who now. It's who's sleeping with who. Who got divorced? Our culture values sex. Our culture values transactional relationships where there's a, there's a take where you can get something out of it. Our culture values romance. Our culture does not value deep friendship. And the statistics overwhelmingly prove that point. It's not a debatable point. We don't value deep friendship. And that's one of the reasons why we're illiterate in it, but also inexperienced. And we're inexperienced in these kind of things because the culture, the, the moment that we're living in is inhospitable to deep friendships. It doesn't have the right growing conditions for deep friendships. We're in a current, in other words, a cultural current. So you ever been to the beach and you've got your stuff here or your friends are on the beach and you go in the water and you're swimming around for a little while and like 20 minutes later you look up and you're 200 yards down the, meet, down the beach? And you didn't even realize that you were being carried that far and that fast away, but you were caught up in a swift current and it moved you away from your stuff or your people. And we're caught up in a, in a cultural current that's only going one way and it's not towards deep, intimate, vulnerable friendship, but it's pulling us away from it. Justin Early, one of the guys I mentioned earlier, he said this, he said, the current of modern life is to become busier, wealthier people who used to have friends. So again, um, the definition of loneliness that we're working with is not like the kid in the corner on their phone who doesn't know how to talk to people. We're talking about us, who everyone else in the room would look at you and say, super popular. But he's saying culture is pulling us to become people who used to have close friends. They live in other towns. They live in your hometown. They're not here anymore. Or when you, when you seniors move, they're going to be here, but not in your next town. It's making us busier, wealthier people who used to have friends. When everyone is drifting in the same current, you won't notice anyone moving at all. If you're going to fight to swim upstream toward a life of friendship, it will look and it will feel very strange. It'll look and it'll feel very strange for you. But loneliness comes without the cost of a choice. He says, you don't choose loneliness. Loneliness chooses you. In other words, loneliness is the result of doing nothing. Loneliness is the result of doing nothing, of not fighting against the cultural current that's pulling us away from each other in intimate relationships, drifting in that current. So unless you, unless you have memories of what it's been like to fight for friendship, it means we're caught in the current and we're drifting away from people. It's deceptive right now because you're in the prime of your life in the prime time for friendship building but almost none of you are staying here. And almost all of you are moving back to cities where there's not hundreds of people waiting for you. And it will become apparent on day one on the ground. So our culture of this entertainment achievement doesn't, doesn't leave us with much time for this patient work of friendship building, right? That should be obvious. We feel it. We're busy. I feel it. And Proverbs says, you're not crazy for feeling that. And it's not just some modern thing going on. Um, the path to deep friendship has always been an uphill path, which again is countercultural. 
Ours is a culture that talks about falling in love, like gravity's just going to do all the work. It's not how the Bible talks about it. Um, love is an uphill climb. Deep friendship is an uphill climb. And Proverbs says, you're not crazy if you think it's hard to make these friendships and to find these kind of friends. God would agree that it's hard. Well, Proverbs would say, actually, um, if you, finding a, a large quantity of friends, that can be easy. But finding a handful or a few, one or two quality friends, that's what it would say is hard. So, for example, it says in, in um, Proverbs 20, verse 6, I'm going to try to just work down the page through these passages so you can track with me. But it says, many claim to have unfailing love, but a faithful person who can find, or a faithful friend, a best friend who can find. In other words, he's saying friendly people are a dime a dozen, but a best friend is a needle in a haystack. Friendly people, we should hang out sometime, are a dime a dozen. A best friend who texts, pursues, calls, or you as the best friend texting, pursuing, calling, a needle in a haystack. These kind of deep friendships are the fruit at the top of the tree, not the low-hanging fruit that just kind of on a lackadaisical straight, uh, you know, stroll we can just reach up and grab and take. But it's like climbing the tree to get to the top to get to this kind of friendship. And this is why we, none of us have a, a, a capacity for more than one or two or three of these kind of friends. Jesus himself had three best friends, 12 super tight disciples, but... James, John, and Peter were his best friends, and the Bible talks about that. I always wondered what that made the others feel like. <laughs> but they would talk about it. Jesus himself, in the flesh, as a human being, had a, had a limited capacity for a depth of relationship, and it was with three people. For the rest of us, it's probably around the same number or smaller. Proverbs 18.24, a large quantity of friends, he's saying, won't necessarily protect you from ruin, but one close friend can. So being popular is not necessarily advantageous to protecting you from social ruin, but having one close friend that you've let in and that's let you in can. A man of many companions may still come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother, he says. What else do we see in that passage? Why can just one friend protect you from ruin, from kind of existential collapse, but 30 acquaintances or companions or people that you know and you enjoy hanging out with, they can't? Because that friend sticks closer than a brother. His lang Proverbs language is intentional here. A brother has to love you. A sister has to love you. They're duty-bound. A friend wants to love you. One loves out of duty, the other loves out of desire. Most of y'all know what it's like to feel desired and wanted and delighted in by another person. You know the music that it brings on your insides. The confidence that it builds in you. Helps you kind of know who you are. A best friend isn't a fair weather friend they love at all times, meaning in all kinds of times, all kinds of circumstances, not just kind of when everything's great and life's going well. 
Here's a story about that. It says also a, a, a friend is born for adversity. In other words, they were born to, be, to walk through the dark valleys with you. I remember a phone call I got from a student a, f- a few years ago. It was a late night call, so I thought there was an emergency or something I picked up, and um, she was telling me that one of her best friends just got broken up with. This was a relationship they thought was going to go into marriage pretty soon. Um, the relationship broke up, and I knew this girl too, and so she was calling to tell me. And uh, I said, well, where are you? It's 11 o'clock. She's like, I'm on my way over there right now. And she stayed with her all night long as her friend sobbed and wept. And she called in late to work the next morning. Companions text and say, can you let me know if there's anything I can do? Best friends get in the car and go. And brothers, yet another place we get to learn from our sisters because God seems to have preserved so much more of their intuition here. Get in the car and go to your brother's house in his moment of need. And if he's crying, hold him when he cries. Stop texting. Let me know if I can do something for you. If you're his guy, be there. That's what these kind of friends do. They don't, they can't. It's not that they don't stay far off. They can't. How could they not come over to be with you? They love you. Their soul, their heart is woven into yours. When you hurt, they hurt. So look, maybe this has kind of stirred um, either some, some gratitude in your heart because you have friends like this. You've been loved this way or you love someone this way. Maybe it's stirred intrigue. You could see this materializing in your life in the next few years and you're like, okay, I need some advice. How do we find these? How do we forge these? Maybe it's been hard for you to hear this because you've been around here a long time. You've been around Athens for a long time and it seems elusive. For all three categories of people, what we're going to talk about in the second half of this is hopefully going to be helpful to you, but it's, it's what wisdom God has in finding and forging these deep friendships. We've already alluded to this, but just to drill it down further, um, Proverbs 25, or sorry, um, yeah, 25, 17. um, It has a suggestion here that finding close friends, building and finding these best friendships isn't as straightforward as just thinking, I got really inspired by that message. I'm I'm, going to go make friends. I'm going to go find best friends. It's not that straightforward. It's also not as straightforward as, as, as thinking it's my fraternity or my sorority's job to kind of curate best friends for me, or it's RUF's job or my local church's job to get best friends for me. You might not think that's that relevant. I hear it all the time. We will abdicate our responsibility to move towards other people and to, to put ourselves out there, to make ourselves available for friendship, and we will blame it on a church, on a ministry, on a fraternity, sorority, a group, a friend group as if it's their responsibility to build your friendships. It's yours, and it's your opportunity. So building these friendships is not as simple as just saying, I want them, let me go build them, let me go create them. It's also not as straightforward as just um, walking up to someone tonight and being like, I want to be best friends with you. Um, I know that's kind of funny, but I've observed that happen before. And I was like, oh, this is not starting well. (laughs) This is not going to go well. And that's what Proverbs says, too. Proverbs 25, 17, seldom set your foot in your neighbor's house. Too much of you and they'll hate you. What it's saying there is you can't force 
this kind of friendship. To put it provocatively, I'm going to leave it as provocative as Proverbs says it. Pushy people who force themselves on you are just as annoying in 900 BC as they can be in 2023. That's what Proverbs said. It, God's word's not mine. You can't walk into someone's house and say, we're going to be friends. It also means um, it's, it never really lands well with other people to complain and to kind of say the phrase, nobody wants to be my friend. That's the flip side of the coin of be my friend is complaining nobody wants to be my friend. Both of them have an attitude of I should just be able to make this happen. It should just fall into my lap. Why would someone be tempted to kind of overstay their welcome, um, overtext, overshare, overcall? Why would someone be tempted to do that? Because they're trying to force a friendship where it's not happening or where it's not organically growing. They're trying to magically make something happen that's not happening on its own, and that's why it feels so forced. Um, perhaps you're familiar with this. C.S. Lewis, in his, one of his most famous essays in The Four Loves, he has an essay on friendship in there, and he says this. He says, this is why those pitiful people who simply want friends can never make any friends. The very condition of having friends is that there would be something for the friendship to be about. The friendship must be about something, even if it were only an enthusiasm for dominoes or white mice. You can't just be friends. You have to be friends about something. I'm going to flesh this out in a second with a few stories, but I want you to hear that. You can't just be friends. You've got to be friends around something, about something. As you fall in love with the same thing. So what are we supposed to do? Because we just said deep friendships can't be forced, but I'm about to tell you that they have to be forged. You can't force these, but you do have to forge them. So where in the world, what in the world happens when we put those two statements together? Here's the first piece of it. You can't just sit there and these kind of friendships magically develop. Proverbs 6, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest and poverty will come on you like a thief. That's not just true of financial poverty. It's true of social poverty, social scarcity. He's saying um, if, if we kind of retreat back into our little cocoon or our little cave, um, social poverty will come on you overnight. That scarcity will come upon you. Work and effort is required. So sitting and not doing anything is not a good alternative for not forcing friendship. So again, what do we do? What's it look like to forge a friendship? It begins with arranging your life for the potential of deep friendship. Or I should say this, rearranging your life. We've all arranged your life a certain way. We've optimized it for a certain outcome. Rearranging your life for the potential of a deep friendship. Justin Early, again, I'm going to quote him. He says, you can wake to watch the sunrise, but anyone who knows, but anyone who does knows that they have nothing to do with it. In other words, you can't create a sunset. You can just arrange your life around it. They've only arranged their life to witness the miracle of it. So you can arrange your life for friendship. But when it happens, it remains a miracle. Like the sunrise, friendship is not something you accomplish so much as something you arrange your life for, bear witness to, and give thanks for. That's one of the to-do items. 
We'll flesh it out, keep fleshing this out, but that's one of the two times, rearranging our lives for the potential of a depth of friendship you might not have even known yet. So friendship isn't created, it's discovered, it's stumbled upon as you put yourself out there. Remember about a month ago, we talked about the parable of the Good Samaritan and loving our neighbors. A neighbor is whoever's in your path at the same place, the same time, who has a need that's obvious. And we said in that message, how many of your closest friends were at one point your neighbor? They were a stranger who needed you and now your best friends, or you were the person who needed them and now your close friends. So it means putting ourselves out there, we stumble upon these friendships as we keep showing up in our communities. Another aside, if you're newer to RUF, as you get plugged into your local church, there's a method to the madness of why we do these events, why we do conferences, why we do uh, game day tailgates, why we do events like fetch and scavenger hunts. It's not to be busy. It takes a lot of work to do that. All we're trying to do is create spaces for you to discover friends that you might change their life and they might change yours. But it does require continually showing up in those spaces. I remember the friends that I met in this room, just to keep it specific and you know relevant to this crowd, I remember sitting over there and I heard a, I heard a, heard a friend named Brandon pray up here at large group one night and as I heard him pray, he was praying, the same song out of his heart was the one in mine. His gentleness with people that he prayed for, his nuance with scripture, his love for people, how much fun he was when we got to talk afterwards and hearing him in that moment, bumping into him, discovering that kindredness led to, uh, we started to get a little group of guys to go up to walkers after large group and get a drink and talk about the sermon or just talk about life. And that turned into lunches, and that turned into camping trips, and that turned into deep friendship. He's a pastor in Denver. I saw him last December. Got to spend hours talking, and it was just like two nights after I first met him. Anna was that way, too. I didn't tell you I was going to do this. She's nervous right now. Look at her sweat. But a similar story. I saw Anna work the crowd after large group. I saw her heart for people. I saw her walk up to new people. I was one of the new people. She was a senior. Seniors are supposed to be all into their own thing, not seeing or noticing new people. Anna noticed. Our friend groups began to merge. And we would go up to what's now Trapeze, what used to be a coffee shop, and get coffees that were very confusing to her. We're talking about dating next week. <laughs> and I guess to me too. But. I loved those coffees because we talked about what God was doing in our lives and our hearts, and I got to see her heart for ministry and her heart for God. Justin, my friend in New Mexico, I, I fell in love with his humor. I fell in love with his irreverence for people who get all knotted up about stuff they shouldn't get knotted up about. And I'm like, I love this guy, like kindred spirits. I loved how seriously he took the gospel and how he didn't take himself seriously at all. We did Whataburger runs. Uh, he would come to town every time he called me. Do you see the evolution of people that we just bumped into? We discovered a resonance, a kindredness, and we had a decision to make, and you do too. Let it fizzle or forge it into something more. Remember what I told you earlier. Doing nothing means drifting away from deep friendship all the time. That's fizzling. Or forging it is fighting against the current. 
So when you notice this resonance, this kindredness, you've got to talk it out. That's the time when one of you has to make the first move and tell the other, which again, if you go read 1 Samuel 18, you'll see this happening. Jonathan and David, it was not their little secret how much they loved the other. They talked about it. Guys, is there anyone in your life that you've said, I love you? You're different than the others. I look up to you. You make me want to you make me want to take Jesus more seriously. You make me want to treat people better. Girls, have you ever said that to someone in your life? Verbalized this growing developing friendship so that she knows who you are to her and who she is to you. If this sounds like a DTR, that's cuz it is. You don't know how to treat each other differently until you realize the relationship has changed. We're not companions anymore. We're brothers, we're sisters, we're best friends. And it signals to the other, we need to rearrange our lives for the other person. So you've got to talk it out. Otherwise, you will continue in kind of the superficial mode of, of companionship, of mere companionship that includes flattery. Look at all these proverbs about the dangers of flattery. People who are merely companions don't have enough chips and trust built up with each other to cash them out and to say, dude, where's your heart? Something's going on with you. None of your other friends are going to call you out for it because they're too afraid to make you mad, but what are you doing? That's what a best friend gets to do that companions can't because companions need you to like them. But friends love you and they know you love them and so they can take risk. They can stick their neck out on the line for your sake. Friends who forge a deeper friendship make time for each other. They intentionally carve out time for heart-to-heart connection. Heart-to-heart connection. Proverbs 26, 18, like a maniac shooting flaming arrows of death is one who deceives his neighbor and says, just kidding, here's a person who is emotionally incapable of opening up and sharing their heart, being real, talking about what's really going on. All The only tool in the toolbox is sarcasm and humor. And it's an impediment to those relationships getting forged, but if you're in relationship with a person like that, or you are that person, can you hear your friend invite you into a deeper relationship, a deeper friendship, and saying, hey, why do you always do that? Like, I'll blaze the path, because I don't seem to be as emotionally incapable as you, but like, let's talk about, like, where's your mind been this week? This is really hard when you're busy. Something I admire about um, Casey, Grace, Felicity, and Elliot started with Casey and Grace years ago, but they've carved out a specific night of the week in a very busy schedule just to be with their friends. And now, three, four, five years later, um, one of them throws a party and 30 people come. They, They blazed a path for deep friendship to happen. And you better believe it was inconvenient And you better believe there's tons of those Thursday or Friday nights. They don't have time for that. Or they're just tired. But they showed up and they kept showing up. So friends, if you are in a relationship with a best friend, with a close friend, you're their person. And God invites you and is using you, not other people, to do a deeper work in your friend's life. We get to repent of our flattery, of our people-pleasing, and we get to ask Jesus 
to help us be a friend like him and to say true things that will help our friends, that will lead our friends to truth, that will encourage our friends, that will affirm our friends. And we get to receive that from them. But as we, as we wrap this up, I just want to acknowledge, if you have been paying attention, you should be feeling something right now. Oh my gosh, deep friendship is intimidating. Way more intimidating than I might have thought. Like I thought I wanted a best friend and now I'm like, maybe not. That's a lot. Deep friendship causes you to look at and move towards your own insecurities. If you're a people pleaser, it's going to force you to have to crucify that and die to that and put that off and put on love. See what I mean? It's intimidating. Deep friendship will involve you letting someone else rummage around some of your darkest secrets and biggest pains. And that's unsettling, even in the best case scenario. So deep friendship itself can be intimidating. Maybe you're wondering by now, or you're thinking by now, gee, I'm not that great of a friend. Like, I'm loving this message for other people's posture towards me, but when I think of me as the best friend, I'm like, whoa, I fall short of this. I don't see much intentionality in my relationships. All of us are also thinking about close friends who have disappointed you, let you down, hurt you, or the relationship's broken. And there's a lot of pain there. And so what we all need three times over at least is Jesus, our friend. John 15, the very last passage, is recorded from his last really his last night. This is right before, or soon before Jesus is betrayed and arrested. He knows he's a dead man walking. He knows he's in the last hours of his life. He knows alienation from the Father and the Spirit is waiting for him like a major league batter about to crush a ball. And he's the one who's going to be crushed. Anybody in their very last minutes of life um, you would imagine their mind is very focused on what's most near and dear to them. And for most people, it's ourselves. For Jesus, it's you. Greater love has no one than this, he says on that night right before he was led away, than to lay down his life for his friends. And lest you think he's just being theological, he says, you're my friends, you these guys who had abandoned him and would betray him, all of whom would disappoint him and let him down, none of whom would be there in his moment of adversity, not a single one. And he says, you're my friends. He doesn't say, I'm your brother. He says, I'm your friend. He's not duty bound to love you. He desires to love you. He doesn't have to show up for you. He wants to show up for you. And he didn't just say that he is your friend, but he said you are his friend. If a stranger walked up, he would introduce you as, this is my friend Ben. And you'd be looking past you. Is there another Ben in the room? Like someone with a cleaner life or, you know, better devotion, better, better Christian than me? Like, which Ben is he talking? He said, you. You're my friend. Really, the gospel is one long story of friendship, a God who made men and women to be his friends and to live with him in perfect love forever. 
And it's the story of how another person came between us and ruined and broke the relationship and burned the bridges. And we sided with that other person and not our friend. And the gospel is the story of how God, the Son, took on flesh in an act of friendship to his enemies. And he lifted their burdens and fought their battles. And he didn't flatter us and come and talk about how awesome we were. But he came and said, you're dead, and I came to make you alive. And that's what it means that he is our friend and that he loves our souls. So friends, if Jesus is your friend, and if you're not his friend, he invites you to be his friend. I just said it's the whole point of what he went on the cross to do, to reconcile you, to restore a friendship. If you are friends with Jesus and he is your friend, you can lean into radical, risky love with your friends. You can face your insecurities. You can take a chance. You can tell someone they're different to you. You look up to them. You can call them out. Because Jesus, as your friend, is loving you through every single step of that. Let's pray. Jesus, what a friend of sinners. Jesus, lover of my soul. Just some songs that other friends of yours have written over the years. Really, all of your people have written music to you. They've written songs about you, poems about you. They tell other people about you. Everyone who knows you as a friend can't stop talking about you because of the friend that you have been, the friend that you are, the friend that you will be. Jesus, I pray for any of those in the room tonight who hunger to be your friend. They're not now. Tonight, draw them to yourself and show them that you have laid down your life for them too and befriend them. For the rest of us, help us to honor you by being friends. We pray this in your name.